0: All right, let's go ahead and get started this morning. We're going to tie the equip hour to the morning study uh, as we take the next weeks to consider this action verb from Luke 14 of commitment. So, this morning, we want to look at a few practical, kind of foundational ideas to help us understand committing to the church. Now, granted, Uh, several of the studies in the coming weeks will fall under the umbrella of committing to the church in some way. Uh, So today I want to just kind of think through some of the foundations of some general theology for understanding commitment to the church and then some practical methods. I asked you to think about how you could prepare yourself to commit to the church and I want to think even like come Saturday like how we get ready to be committed to the church week by week. So We'll look at some theology first and and then talk through some practical methods for what it looks like to express commitment to the church. And then in the morning study, we'll look more at the biblical foundation of this idea of membership, what we would see there. So let's talk together about some general theology for understanding commitment to the church. We know from our study in Luke 14, the last couple Sundays, Jesus calls us to be followers of him. But we also realize that following Christ is done in a context of other believers. We're just never asked to do that on our own. Uh, God has designed the church to be the place where we live out our Christian faith. So theologically, anybody know the big word for the doctrine of the church in systematic theology? Remember what that one is? You know, you usually start with bibliology and then theology proper, the study of God, Christology, Christ, pneumatology, the spirit. Ecclesiology, yep. Yeah, it's from it's from the Greek word ekklesia, which means ek, out, and kaleo, to be called. So to be called out, ekklesia from Greek kind of went straight into Latin, which kind of comes... Uh, eventually to us through German uh, and then Anglo-Saxon and it ends up as church, uh, eventually for us in English. Uh, but Ekklesia, uh gives us ecclesiology, the study of the church. Let me just make sure we're clear uh, on two aspects of the church. What, what, do you, what comes to your mind when you hear the visible church, and the invisible church. Kind of sounds a little spooky, but what, what do you, can you take a stab at any one of those or both? Jared? Okay. Um, so the local body and the true church were... Let's let's build on that. The, that true is helpful. Um, what what do you think visible means when we say the visible church? Physical presence. It's, it's what you can see. Um, the visible invisible is really our perspective. What what we can see and what we can't. So the visible church is. We see people walk in the doors, and we see them raise their hands and say they're a member, or we see them partake of the Lord's Supper, and they say they're believers. And that's all we can see. We can't see into the heart to know if they are some of those from Matthew 7 that say, Lord, Lord, and yet they never really were true believers. Uh, So the visible church are all those who name the name of Christ, they show up on Sundays and they kind of do the things Christians do, um, and we may even see what we think is fruit of that profession of faith and agree that they sure look like Christians. That's the visible church. Uh, The invisible church uh, would be uh, more clearly, as God sees it, the ones who are truly saved. Um, that may not be what we can see. We can't see into the heart and say, oh, that's actually a, a professing you know, Christian, but a heart that's never been regenerated. Um, so that's, that's, as Jared said, the, the true church. Invisible to us, but visible to God. Uh, he knows exactly who the believers are. Uh, he's called them. So uh, that, that often comes up even in the study of church membership, because some argue, well, you know, how can we really know, and should we be putting people's names on a list if we can't know for sure? And it's like, well, you know, I understand where you're coming from, but uh, we might as well not wring our hands too much about this, because Jesus just tells us, listen, a good tree brings forth good fruit, a bad tree, bad fruit. By their fruits, you'll know them. So, That's all he asks us to do is just look at the fruit. Um, So visible, invisible, you might hear that language. Don't don't be alarmed by it. Uh, Let's contrast the local church to the universal church. What do you think of there? Local, universal. Which one are you? Both. Good. Good answer. Uh, The universal church... Well, I think you can put those words together and you realize that that's the people of God, the believers all over the world and in the span of all time. It's just anybody that we're going to be worshiping the lamb with in heaven. um, We would think of as the universal church. Um, Obviously, there's probably a historic dispensational position that would perpetually keep Israel and the church separate even in heaven. Um, I would suggest that we should just celebrate the people of God and realize that even Israel of old um, seems to merge right into the people of God in the New Testament. Whether you look at Romans, where the Israel of God, or whether you look at Galatians, we as Gentiles are descendants of Abraham by faith. God clearly seems to merge even Old Testament Israel, into believers in Jesus Christ in the church age so that we can say they're all the people of God. They're the bride of Christ. They are the church. Um, So the universal church, believers of all time and all places, uh, why why do we even use that language in contrast with the local church? Can you think of any reasons we might do that? Let me, let me suggest it this way. What if somebody said, well, I don't go to church anywhere, you know, I just kind of worship God in nature, and after all, we're all just part of the universal church. What would you say to them? Is it wrong to worship God alone in nature? You might take walks in a park every week and do that. not wrong in and of itself. Is he wrong to say he's part of the universal church? Well, if he's a believer, of course he is. But why do we need this other aspect? What is he missing? Yeah, all the one another's. Uh, All those commands that tell us how we're supposed to relate to other Christians. And frankly, it's just, we can say, oh, I'm part of the universal church and I love God's people. But if you never have to love God's people because you're never with them, it's a bit theoretical when the Christian life is, is extremely practical and you're told to bear with one another because it's not easy to love other Christians sometimes. And that's where the rubber meets the road. And we truly see what Jesus told his disciples in John 13. It's loving each other that will be the mark of your following Jesus. Um, by this, all men will know you're my disciples if you have love for one another. And it's just hard to say I love the church universal because I don't week by week show my love for believers in Uganda or believers in, you know, Central Asia or believers in the Philippines. That, that's not where God has put me to live out my following of Christ. Yeah, Hebrews 10.25, we don't neglect the, the gathering with other believers, as some have done, he says. Um, there's, that, there's that intentional rejection or neglect or an attitude that says, well, I don't need them, but the Bible says, don't neglect it. Uh, that would be wrong. Um, yeah, Hebrews 10 is a, is a good text for understanding the body of the church. A couple other words that we should be familiar with when we think of the doctrine of the church, they come to us from the Nicene Creed from the 300s and beyond. Uh, The church has often been defined as one, holy, Catholic, apostolic church. So let's look at each of those terms. One church, a holy church, a Catholic church, an apostolic church. There's a, there's a lot of those words that can get you in trouble these days. If you went to a oneness church, you could have some issues to work through. If you went to a holiness church, you might have some other issues to work through. Uh, if you went to what we'd call a Catholic church, you might think, oh, yeah, I might look a little different than I'm used to. And if you went to an apostolic church, um, I'm not sure what you could get into, um, But you put them all together in their historical context, and it defines what the church has been and should be. So when we say there is one church, we're speaking of there's there's only one body, and there is a head of that body, Christ, Um, which is some of the problems of what we would say keeping Israel and the church so distinctly divided so that even in heaven, there's still Israel and the church, the two peoples of God. But that hasn't been the historical definition of the church um, throughout the ages. It's been one church, one people of God. There have been different covenants where we've understood and defined that people. But faith in the promises of God to save sinners since they can't save themselves has always been the foundation for how you become the people of God. So there's one church with Christ as its head. Uh, only, Only one bride walking down the aisle Um, And that reminds us of the Nicene Creed, one holy Catholic apostolic church, Uh, a holy church defined by God uh, with the boundaries of righteousness. And we can go back to Exodus 19. And when God is first establishing the formality of a nation, of, of a people in covenant with him, they are being set apart to him. Uh, So they're going to be different from all these Canaanite tribes in that land God's going to give them. Uh, And whether that's in clear moral boundaries of holiness and righteousness, and in some ways what appears to be very just kind of practical identifying marks, uh, the, the blending of their fabrics and, you know, what they could eat and not eat. God was setting them apart, Whether they understood it all or not, he said, here's how you will be different to me. So that holy church, uh, that holiness has always been on display so that when God ransoms a people to himself and calls them to holiness, they stand out as salt and as light uh, and they hold forth this holy truth in the crooked and perverse generation, Philippians says, in which they live. Um, and Jesus is clear to his disciples, I'm not taking you out of the world. Um, That kind of set-apartness will be reserved for the eternal state. I'm leaving you in the world because you're on display as a billboard to what God does for sinners. So there's one church. It's a holy church. What do we mean when we say it is a Catholic church? What does that mean? Means universal. It, it, that's just the simple meaning of the word. In our minds, we we have taken Catholic, and we've really what we really mean is Roman, the Roman Church, the the Church that evolved out of the one holy, universal apostolic Church. There was only one. It was the apostolic doctrine. It was the creeds and the confessions. But the Church, the one Church that existed in humanity um began to falter and began to stray and in leadership at least they began to really compete with whose pastor was the best and eventually the dominant pastor became not only the pastor of the local church but over a whole con- or a whole group of churches and now this group would pit itself against this one and and ultimately that led to these major districts, and each of them had great leaders. They were called sees. S-E-A-S. A sea was this kind of collection, a region of churches. Well, of the seven major seas, one of them became the dominant and had the, the greatest leader. And so the where that had its headquarters in Rome eventually became the strongest, loudest, most dominant one, and their leader became the leader of all the churches. And he became known as Father or the Pope. So the Roman church, the word Rome became, well, that's where it was headquartered. But it also came to represent the body of teaching that had been added to the teaching of the apostles. And that's what we think of as the Catholic church. So everything, when you hear Catholic, think, well, that, that wasn't the problem. It was Roman that was the problem. It was this digression into all these other doctrines and and elevating one man and and giving him infallibility and all of that that was headquartered at Rome is the problem. Um, Catholic, by very definition, simply means universal, and that has always been the promise. God, speaking even to Abraham, said, I will bless all nations of the earth through... His descendants, um, Jesus would say that his church is gonna is gonna grow and expand and read the parables and the four corners of the earth and hear uh, the prophets and revelations speaking of calling his people from those four corners. It's that catholicity, the universal spread of God's church. So apostolic or, or catholic is is not a problem. Um, it's just a little confusing in our day because we don't think in more ancient terms. We just hear Catholic and think, well, we're not Catholic. Well, we very much are the church universal, uh, part of the kingdom of God around the globe. Uh, So don't be alarmed if you hear Catholic. Oftentimes when we recite the creed, we haven't used the Nicene Creed in a while, but we will do the Apostles' Creed, and we'll say that we believe in the universal church, just so that if we hadn't explained it freshly, somebody wouldn't hear that and think, I didn't know this was a Catholic church, um, because we have so associated that word with a doctrinal position and not just as a descriptive of the church. So we are one holy Catholic, Apostolic Church. And there again, when you hear somebody in the church today being called an apostle, you should probably have an antenna go up along, you know, with a red flag. Like, why are they calling him an apostle? And um, so when we say the apostolic church, we're not claiming any kind of apostolic succession. We're not saying church leaders are in a direct line. We're not, uh, all we're saying is the apostles laid the foundation of the New Testament church by unfolding the body of doctrine that Jesus taught them. Uh, so the apostolic church is just saying we're going back to the Bible and Jesus taught these men and they carried in the book of Acts that doctrine to the known world of their day. So that church, that foundation is what we want to stand on. And so a couple hundred years later, when they were trying to define what is the church, they wanted people to know Christ is the head. There's one church. It's defined in its holiness. Its scope will be universal, and its foundation will be the teaching of the apostles. Uh, So ecclesiology, the study of the church, local Universal, we could talk visible, invisible. That sounds, oh, that sounds like deep theology, but it's actually pretty practical. It's why you gathered here today um, and recognized the importance of that. Before we get to some of the practical commitments to the church, can you give me a few metaphors for the church in the New Testament? What are some of the metaphors? How is the church described? The church is like a Blank. What was that? Body. The church is like a body. Maybe the most familiar. Um, maybe almost a favorite, just because you, we get it. You know, you get a bad fingernail and it's pain. You get a headache, and, and you realize how it affects the body. So when you hear that language, and I, uh, I think that'll be in our morning service. Um, it, it just it immediately connects with something we know. So, one of those incredibly helpful metaphors of the church. What else? A building. Uh, sometimes a building in general, other times a temple. Um, but we studied that in 1 Peter. Were these living stones together in the household of God? Um, he's building something. What else? The bride, uh, familiar language. Uh, Ephesians 5, uh, where else would we see that? Revelation, um, another pretty common metaphor, and it helps us understand, yes, me individually, I'm a Christian, and I have a relationship with Jesus Christ, but I'm identified with all the other individuals. So the individuality is not lost, but it's just bigger than that, and it's, and, and the whole church becomes uh, the bride of Christ. What else? What other metaphors are there? Flock. John ten especially introduces us to the good shepherd and gives us weighty doctrine about the call of to salvation and uh, so John ten and building on the prophets and elsewhere. Uh, Probably one of the final references in Hebrews that great shepherd of the sheep Jesus what else Sheep flock what else? Yes we get the harvest the the crops first Corinthians 3 the parable language the wheat and the tares. Um, but we are his vineyard uh, in the Old Testament language, uh, Israel was. Um, so, the, uh, a field of crops that'll be harvested, Christ the first fruit. So, a lot, of, a lot of agricultural language that reminds us also of the promise that he is sanctifying his church, he's tilling it, he's tending it. And that you read uh, the prophets, and when God says, I did all this work. For my garden and preparing the soil and planting it and protecting it, so it's that ongoing hands-on work uh, in his church. All right, a couple more. Yes, the the priesthood and nation language that Peter uses and elsewhere. One more, pretty. What's that? Yes, the family, that's the, I was just about to say, one more kind of everyday kind of one, uh, the family. Um, and so we can, we can remember squabbling with siblings, right? And, uh, and we realize, oh, yeah, and that metaphor of squabbling has carried over pretty accurately for us, unfortunately, into the church. And yet the family, that, the closeness, the, the bond that comes even entering the family. Um, We have both natural birth and adoption as part of understanding the language of theology. We're adopted into God's family, so we get that part of it, but we're also born with the new birth. And so those analogies of even becoming family are important for the church. Uh, Good, so there's those and maybe a few others, uh, similes that could be thrown in there. We talked about Israel and the church. Uh, Some want to keep them very separate. I think we're better to just let them run right in together under one heading, the people of God. Um, Let's think on one last distinction before we think practically about how we commit to every Sunday being a part of the church. Um, What do you think of, how do you compare or contrast the language of the church and the kingdom of God? Big question. Volumes are written about it, but I want to at least have it in our minds that we hear this language and we probably think similar and, and that's good. Um, but any thoughts come to mind on the church versus the kingdom of God? Maybe the question would be this, in your mind, do you think of them as the same thing? Are those synonymous terms, the church and the kingdom of God? Because Jesus uses both terms, on this rock, I will build my church. In other places, he says things like, you know, the kingdom of God is at hand. Um, So do we think of those terms synonymously? Synonymously. Okay, so the church, a subset of the kingdom? Or a part, yeah. part, part, certainly. That, right. What, what would we add to, if we had kingdom and a subset of church, what, uh, what else would we be talking about under kingdom then? So another realm? There. No, no, we're, you're, we're definitely beginning to kind of set the stage. Um, church, we're probably more confident. Go ahead. Eternal. Eternal. A perfected state. What, what comes to your mind first in defining kingdom? Reigning. So... Dave was kind of helping us see maybe kingdom is biggest and church as a subset. And and I haven't thought through this even enough to know if that's the... But I think that helps us to understand that when we talk kingdom, we're talking about the rule of God. He reigns. It's his authority. It's his power. It's his providence and how that unfolds. So we're probably best to say something like, The church is a manifestation of the kingdom. It it demonstrates his power. And so as the gospel advances, it's through the church, but it's not the church that is powerful in and of itself. The church doesn't have that authority. We're we're commissioned, remember Matthew 28, because of Christ's authority. All authority, uh, power, it might say, all authority is given to me, Jesus says, Therefore, because that's true, I can send you out with with this good news, proclaiming this good news. And so, in a sense, it's not crucial for the practice of living out our faith. We make the gospel known and we believe that it works. It can transform individual lives. You know, it can win over leaders of nations and nations themselves. There's just no limit to its power. Um, so we could say the church is advancing. We could say the kingdom is advancing. But if we were going to split hairs, we would say the kingdom is the rule of God, but it's clearly manifest in the lives of his people. And so we pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So in my heart and in the hearts of your people, so in your church, may your kingdom be seen as it is in heaven. So you might hear those terms, and and in some ways they are synonymous in the sense of advancement and triumph and what God is doing in this world. But if you think more specifically, you would realize the kingdom is the rule of God, and it's demonstrated or manifest in his church. Yeah, I think kingdom would kind of blur the lines of what we think of as time, you know, and, and realize that, you know, we're, we're wanting the kingdom now, and yet it is going to culminate in triumph, so it's then, and, in, and yet in our minds, we're kind of waiting for the kingdom to really be seen and manifest to all, even God's enemies, but in God's mind, he's, he's not waiting to be victorious. He always has been. Right. I think we'd have to link it to God himself, who he says was and is and is to come. So his rule is that too. Um, in our minds, it feels very segregated, though, as right now, why did the evil prosper? And yet we know he's coming and... He will be recognized as king of kings and lord of lords. Right. A lot of kingdom language there. um, Transferred out of the kingdom of darkness into his marvelous light. Um, So just know those words can be together in the conversation of the church and its victory because of what Christ is doing. Um, But there is a a little distinction there. All right, so that's some general theology for understanding commitment to the church. Now let's talk about some practical methods of expressing commitment to the church. And by this, I mean really practical. Um, In a sense, I almost want us to think as practical as like, what do I need to do on Saturday to be ready to demonstrate that I'm committed to the church on Sunday? What do I need to be thinking Sunday when I come to church? Uh, what does commitment look like on a week-to-week basis, not just theologically, uh, I'm committed to this doctrine or committed to you know, this definition of the church? Um, what, does, what does it look like practically to express commitment to the church? Anybody have any suggestions for us? It can be really practical. If you start getting philosophical again, we we'll, might explore it a little bit. But what do you think? What are, what are some really practical ways that you can demonstrate, yes, this is important uh, to us as a family, to me individually, uh, on a weekly basis? Right. So that's kind of my first point as well, especially with the word prepare. But because I think it is a battle, I worded it this way, fight against preventable chaos. All right? Because I know, I know there is unpreventable chaos that can happen Saturday and Sunday. But fight against preventable chaos, Mom, I don't have any shoes. Or Mom, I don't have any this. Or Mom, and it's like, why didn't we do this last night? Um, so there is the unpreventable stuff, and it, you know somebody is going to spill something on them after they already got dressed and all that kind of stuff. Um, so be wise and plan ahead to eliminate as many issues as possible. Uh, as Gary said, lay out some clothes. If if you're into ironing, uh, I know. Marketing, everything is wrinkle-free anymore, but I don't know. After ironing a shirt every single day of my college career, I just kind of enjoy getting out the iron once in a while. If Carrie doesn't do it, I'll jump in there and... Tss, just hearing the steam is, is fun. Uh, uh, pick out the clothes, you know, prep for breakfast. If you're out Saturday and you see the gas tank's, you know, light is on... Gas it up then so it's not an, an extra hassle Sunday morning. Um, that's that 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 practical preparation and, and Gary touched on some of the spiritual preparation as well. You can build on those, but practically maybe think that committing to the church isn't just, okay, we'll go this week. Most of you aren't thinking that. It's it's more the battling the the routine and the schedule and the mindset, even of kind of tuning out for the weekend, um, a little bit of preparation can go a long way in expressing commitment. All right, what else? Some other practical helps. Night to hard to get up to you. Yeah. Um, and I don't even know where I would have put this. Um, but we all know what it's like to make a plan for Saturday night and then you're out longer than you realized and now you're not avoiding the preventable chaos and you just set yourself back or you just exhaust yourself and, you know, you, you come and sit and, and off it goes, right? And people often ad, or come up to me and say, oh, I'm so sorry, I was drowsy in, in service. And I'm like, well, typically I, 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 I don't see like somebody nodding off. Once in a great while, there will be such a yawn that I just can't help but see, like, whoa, that was a big yawn. <laughs> uh, so generally, I don't notice if you nod off, but uh, we might have the ushers come with the, you know, Puritan New England stick and give a poke or a little knock on the head if you, if you doze off, a little feather to tickle you. I don't know. I've heard all kinds of things. Uh, but I think I think it is a It is an exercise of spiritual discipline, even just to think, oh, I probably just need to go to bed, or, oh, I wanted to read one more chapter, but I just need to lay it down. Um, So, yes, that's a very practical way to to prepare yourself. What else? Yeah. Yeah. So if you know... You need to get stirred up a little bit and wake up the mind and then do that. Take a walk. Um, Do something like that to get up and get going. Some of you need your coffee, you know, to, by all means, drink some and and wake up a little bit. Um, I rely on the Holy Spirit to help me do that, but, you know. (laughs) My my bully pulpit. (laughs) Okay, what else? What else? Yeah, a fabulous, turn on some music, like as soon as you get up, maybe other people aren't even up in the house, but let them wake up to the, the sound playing in the home. Um, play it in the car, or sing together as you come, whatever, but yeah, I think music, I put that under a category of think big thoughts, um, and, and music can do that. If you're listening to rich text, you know, you're being reminded of some big ideas that can help you realize, whoa, this, yeah, this is a big deal. Christ is risen, he's risen indeed, and we're gathering to celebrate it. So, yeah, music is, is a fabulous way to steer your mind back to the commitment to church. Somebody else was starting to say something too there. Right. So one more activity in the day. That calls me back to something on my list. Fight against minor distractions. Um, one, that might mean you wake up and realize you know the routine Sunday mornings. Holy Spirit, help me to walk in your steps here and not be easily bothered and annoyed. Um, no orange juice left. Oh, no, blah, 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 blah. You know, And it's like, whoa, well, wait a minute, just... Don't, don't be easily distracted. That may have happened, and we need to deal with it. Uh, don't spend all your time preparing for the day's events. You know, focus and just enjoy. It's the Lord's day. I know why we call it that. He's risen. I know what that means for me. We're gathering with God's people. There may be other things throughout the day. They may be important. They may be ministry. They may be involved with worship or service or fellowship But kind of just let them come when they do, and don't be so distracted that you've lost track of what this is about. Uh, Don't satisfy your news or social media appetite Sunday morning. You know, if the world's falling apart, you can find out at 1 o'clock and not 8 a.m., Don't read about the chief strategy or anything. Don't busy yourself with chores and details of the house. It's like, oh, well, this didn't get done. I just need to wash some dishes, or I want to do this, or maybe I'll start some... Maybe sometimes you have to do that stuff, but don't make it the routine that, oh, I'm going to maximize my time and, and then jump to church. I would say just fight against minor distractions, not because they're bad things, but because there's the one... Moment where you can think on bigger things. Uh, Fight against critical judgment, another battle of commitment. Um, Even coming to church, either at home or when you get here, people may annoy you. Um, Just know you're going to have to battle those annoyances. You're going to have to battle critical judgment. The sermon may not be up to your expectations that week, the song may not be your favorite, someone may not. Dress the way you like. Um, Bear with one another. Remember that process of sanctification that is unfolding in real time on this Sunday morning. Um, And somebody may be evidencing their need of progressive sanctification. Um, But don't take it upon yourself to feel the weight of that angst. Um, God may ask you to help anybody on any given Sunday, but he doesn't need you to help him determine how wrong they are. Um, so fight against the critical judgments that can really contradict what we say we believe about God sanctifying his church. Um, One other fight, fight against self-focus. Minimize your concern about appearance. I mean, let's face it, we we, we all want to look presentable. Nobody's showing up in their jammies and bedhead, um, and I think, that's an appropriate consideration. Um, but also, just make sure you don't end up in the other ditch by being so concerned about your appearance You know that it, it distracts, it takes away. Uh, we all need to take the time to clothe ourselves and straighten up a little bit, but um, hopefully, even while you're doing that, there's some kind of thought that this isn't most important. If anything, this just serves to eliminate distractions when I'm ministering to people. You know, I think it's good to brush your teeth. So that if you're talking to someone in the lobby, they're not, not listening because they don't want to be that close. Um, there's something about why we present ourselves that should be philosophical or theological. We, we do it for a reason. We want to smell decent or look decent because... We're trying to communicate to people. We want to share and invite and fellowship. And so why would I hinder that in any way? Um, But don't let a bad hair day ruin the Lord's day because the Lord's day is not your hair day, right? Um, But we all know those little things can kind of set us off sometimes, and we need to recognize it's a battle. Abandon the expectation of people noticing you. Believe that God does, but he asks you in Philippians 2 to walk into the assembly, not thinking of your own needs, but thinking of the needs of others. You already know your concerns. You already know your burdens. But do you know the burdens of others, and are you ready to help bear them? So God's not saying your problems aren't important, but he is saying cast those on me. I care for you. Now you go and serve others by being mindful of their needs. Um, So have the mind of Christ, Philippians 2. So fight against preventable chaos, fight against minor distractions, fight against critical judgments, fight against self-focus, and then think big thoughts. Think, why me? Why did I want to get up and go to church? When, like... Me, you drove through neighborhoods of people that could care less. So that, those are the big thoughts that helped me commit to church, because I realized, wait a minute, there are a lot of people that don't care. Their, their great passion and really fulfillment in this week will be, well, I guess tonight it's an evening game, seeing the Chiefs play. And there, there are people here that enjoy watching a game. That's not the problem but we all know there are people at home right now that are going to wake up and think oh i've got to wait 10 hours till the game comes on and they have already spent time yesterday and will spend time today prepping for that grand celebration because it's defining to them for the for the next 5 months they have their identity back they're a chiefs fan they are chiefs kingdom well we need to think bigger thoughts than that and realize Christ's kingdom and the risen Lord. So that kind of big thinking needs to somehow get into our minds Sunday morning, even though we have all this other stuff to do, like be presentable and have the family ready and get there on time and lunch ready. and and There's all that stuff, but we got to think bigger thoughts somewhere in there. Psalm 1 tells us that, We're gathering with the congregation of the righteous. That's an elite group, by God's grace. But it's one that should remind us this is an enormous privilege. Um, So there we go with the congregation of the righteous and the redeemed of the Lord are going to say so as we sing and affirm scripture and hear it read and hear it taught. Think big thoughts. Big thoughts like, will I look like love? If disciples are known by their love for one another, will I look like that this morning? Oh, I might look like a church member because I dressed right, but will I look like a disciple because I'm loving people? So these are the kind of things that we need to be thinking through Saturday and Sunday, not to mention all the other stuff during the week that we could probably talk about that would help us understand what commitment to the church looks like. Jonathan reminded us of the one another's, and a lot of them, you just can't do them all Sunday morning between Sunday school and church or after the service. A lot of that stuff is, takes time and, and effort outside of a, a worship gathering, but that is the nature of the church. So as we talk about commitment to the church, the equip hour is really about you more personally uh, and what that's going to look like week after week after week. Uh, And I get it, we're kind of preaching to the choir. Uh, Most of you aren't wrestling on Sunday morning with whether you're going to go or not. But I I don't want to be satisfied with just not being that crowd. I want us to be thinking, how do I I commit and demonstrate that commitment every week with, with more of a passion for what's really happening. The congregation of the righteous are gathering to worship the risen Christ. And I'm numbered among those who, who celebrate this, who want to run and see the empty tomb. Um, so those big thoughts of worship can be in our minds, even though we live in a, in a temporal world that constrains us with a lot of practical stuff, gas tanks, and need orange juice in the fridge, and got to have something on the table for lunch, and got to have some clothes to wear. And, um, so don't, you don't feel guilty next Sunday because you're getting dressed and eating breakfast. But just realize, what could I be doing while I'm doing those things that might steer me uh, to a greater excitement about the things of the Lord? Because Gary mentioned another whole realm of preparation for either Saturday or Sunday that Ruth echoed with music. But, we, you know, there's prayer. There's, you know, a simple prayer Sunday morning to ask the Lord to help you be a better worshiper to be a better fellowshipper, um, to, to to develop an antenna to people in need because maybe you're kind of easy-going, happy-go-lucky, and everything's great, and you have a hard time like hearing somebody share a burden. Well, pray and ask the Lord to help you to commit to the church in ways that you haven't done before, uh, not because you're bad at it, but simply because we can probably all grow in what it our understanding of what it means to commit to the church. We know this, God loves his church. He gave himself for it, we're told, and we know that good news. So somehow we, in the image of God, and bearing his nature now, partakers of the divine nature, must be lovers of the church. Uh, And I would venture to say, all of you would say you, you do love the church, and I don't have any reason to dispute that. But for all of us, I just want us to think, okay, but what else? What else? And maybe one of these even practical things can help you next week with just, with just a little bit of a step forward in having an intentional commitment to the gathering of the church. So, Lord, thank you for your love for us. Thank you for the story that we have known long and loved much story of Jesus dying in our place, having kept the law in our place, and then rising from that tomb in our place so that we would have a place in heaven with you. Help us to love this story, to rehearse it often, and be willing to share it with those who have never heard it. Uh, for this is what it means to be part of your church. Uh, Continue to teach us in the hour to come. Uh, May our worship be thoughtful, intentional, participatory, uh, for we've gathered to bring you praise, and you're worthy of it, and so we offer it willingly in Jesus' name. Amen.